Hello, I'm Brendan Schuchart, and welcome to the Nova Somo, a semi-weekly series of conversations with the artists, activists, thinkers, and leaders who are redefining what it means to be queer in the post-equality era. This week on the Novus, I'm pleased to bring you a conversation with the brilliant artist, activist, and philosopher, Ted Kerr. Ted is the former director of Visual AIDS, an important hub of art and activism surrounding HIV, and he's currently studying the intersection of HIV and Christian ethics at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Ted and I talk about his studies at UTS, his activism, and, if I'm going to be totally upfront with you, a lot about me. Brace yourselves. With that being said, here's Ted. Strange face with your eyes Oh, there we go. Right. I guess we're it's official. <laughs> Thank you, sexy lady robot voice. She's like 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 uh like an like a little robotic angel blessing our conversation. Yeah, or she's like Ed McMahon. <laughs> Here's Johnny. Exactly. Uh, is your um is your is your coffee successfully brewed and poured? Are we still yes. No, my coffee is brewed. It's poured. It has honey in it. It's uh, it's it's here for me. <laughs> what a supportive cup of java you've done for yourself. I am on the line with Theodore Ted Kerr, the writer, artist, and organizer. How are you doing, Ted? Uh, I'm doing super well. It's a beautiful day in New York in March, and I'm happy to be alive. How about you? Um, it is similarly a beautiful March day here in Los Angeles, um, like really beautiful, which is awesome because yesterday it was really, really wet and rainy, although we need it. I'm, I'm not complaining about it. How does it be? I'm just, uh, didn't want to get my shoes wet today. Um, let's start with, um, you grew up in Canada, yes? I did, yeah, that's right. Whereabouts in Canada did you grow up? Um, so I am from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and uh, it is near the Rocky Mountains. We're in the west. Uh, it's the capital city. Edmonton is the capital city of Alberta. Alberta is kind of like the Texas of Canada. That's kind of a shorthand that is not totally accurate but helpful. Um, Edmonton is a large city. It's uh, about a million people if you include the surrounding areas. It has a huge urban footprint. But it hardly, like, the density is so low. It, the density is 61 times less than New York City. Um, oh, okay. and, yeah. And I grew up, I grew up there. Um, my childhood was spent during the city's heydays. It was called the City of Champions because Wayne Gretzky uh, was captain of the Oilers, and the Oilers were winning Stanley Cups, and we had the world's largest shopping center. <laughs> and then during the 90s, <laughs> the the city went through an economic downturn, and um, it was kind of a blighted, um, shitty place, and I kind of came of age in a blighted downtown Edmonton, and I feel really grateful for that. And why do you feel grateful for that? Because uh, I think it helps, it helps cement in me that I'm much more interested as a person in possibility uh, and thinking through problems rather than necessarily 
um, needing to arrive at a solution. I like working towards a solution, but I also understand that that's not always what is needed. Also, I love Edmonton. It's scrappy, and I guess I should just say now I call it Tedmonton. <laughs> <laughs> call it Tedmonton. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. But now you live you live in Brooklyn. Yeah, I live in Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood called Kensington, which is um, populated with secret queers everywhere. Uh, how do you know they're queer? Um, through partying with them, through seeing them at coffee shops, um, through having friends tell friends, or having friends of friends tell me, oh, my friend blah blah lives there. Um, and then Facebook also lets me know. But, but wait, so why, why is, is it, why are they secret queer? Like, is it, why do, what about Ed, what about, uh, Kensington, um, <laughs> draws, draws secret queers as opposed to queers who are living out in the open? Yeah, I guess maybe I shouldn't say queer. I should just say it's um, it's not obvious. If you if you took the F train to Fort Hamilton Parkway and left the station, you would not know that you were in a neighborhood with lots of queers and a whole variety of what queer means. I think you would just think you were in a nice, almost suburban Brooklyn neighborhood with nice schools and you know, there's a neighborhood nearby called Dennis Park with huge houses, and you wouldn't know that some of those houses house queer collectives. And um, it's secret in the sense that it's it's not easily apparent. Got it, got it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are um, currently studying at Union Theological Seminary? Yeah, that's right. I'm uh, doing my master's there, and I'm looking at Christian ethics and HIV-AIDS. That's happening. Are you studying to be a priest? No, not at all. I'm not um, religious, really. I didn't grow up religious. Um, to me, going to seminary um, is both a fulfillment of uh, what brought me to New York, and it's also, uh, a, I think, a very meaningful way to think through HIV/AIDS. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. What is looking at HIV/AIDS through the lens of Christian ethics? teach you or show you like what's the point of that like, <laughs> what's the point of that you're rude I mean, um, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, why, no it's a great why? question I mean I think I, I fully understand the question and it doesn't always make sense to me but I think of it on two reasons I think um, a lot of us grew up thinking about HIV AIDS in a silo because I think um there was a way in which a bunch of us learned about HIV AIDS through maybe public school or through the media, um, but then didn't always have the community around us to talk about it. And so we came to conclusions on our own. And uh, seminary is an amazing place to think through philosophical ideas that maybe an individual has come with, with on their own and to think through what are the ramifications of those ideas on others. I think another thing is HIV often is spoken through the lens of science or medicine or news and sometimes culture and sometimes art and sometimes activism and sometimes the body, but not really the body. And a seminary allows me to think through HIV AIDS through spirituality and through the body and through the experience of being a person with a spirit and, and hopes and dreams. And then lastly, to to be at the seminary to think through HIV AIDS through the lens of Christianity is a tricky and sometimes like very confusing place to be because if you if 
if someone has had a terrible experience with Christianity, then it can seem like the church and Christianity is the enemy. And I fully respect that and I understand that. So I, I say all this with that in mind. Um, but if we look at Christianity as like a historic social justice movement, if we think about Jesus as like an immigrant of color who was killed by the state for his beliefs, then we can also understand that the church that came out of Christianity was this place of brokenness that is trying to heal and trying to make better for others. And I think that the AIDS movement at its best understands that uh, we can't, we are not independent, we need each other, and some of us need more help than others, and we have to be there for each other. So Christianity provides me these, this lens to think through the AIDS movement and what people need now and what people provided for in the past and what we need in the future in a way that I think is beneficial for the whole movement. Did you grow up religious? Nah, not at all. Um, I went to church like, like maybe once a year whenever my grandparents, uh, would compel me to. Um, for me, my, <laughs> my connection to, um, Union Theological Seminary is through the, um, contemporary artist A.A. A. Bronson. Um, I got a grant from the Government of Canada to work with A.A. And he suggested that we use our time together uh, with me doing a residency at an institute he created at Union. And that institute is called the Institute for Art, Religion, and Social Justice. It's now um, housed uh, with him in Berlin, but at first it was at Union Theological Seminary. So I went for what was supposed to be a month-long residency uh, to study with him, and it turned into a four-month residency, uh, during which time I also got to take classes and um like i think a lot of people who listen to your podcast can identify with you know i was uh, i've been a lifelong <laughs> lefty well, first of all you're making the mistake that a lot of people listen to my podcast this is absolutely untrue <laughs> you think it's not true come on <laughs> i uh sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, of the, if we consider your partner and you and me, what I think is true. Right, I guess you're right. This really just depends on what your definition of a lot is. Wait, okay. So um, I think maybe we should pull back a little bit because we should maybe be talking about why you've decided to pour all of this energy into thinking about the philosophical ramifications of HIV and AIDS. Um, mm. Why have you made HIV and AIDS your, I mean, uh, if I can say something really presumptuous, your life's work? Before doing this, you were the programs manager at Visual Aid, mm -hmm. where you did some really awesome work, written quite beautifully about HIV. Why have you made HIV your mission? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so I don't, I'm not living with HIV, and I feel like often it's assumed that if you're doing HIV work, you must be living with HIV, especially if you're a gay man of a certain age. And a few years ago, I had a summer of really uh, meaningful and upsetting and emotionally uh, life-changing conversations where uh, people had assumed that I was positive, and through, through conversation, one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, they understood that I wasn't. And that created some confusion and hurt feelings, and so we uh, really had to negotiate what that meant, and I had to really think through what does it mean to be a negative person taking up a lot of space in a positive movement, and um, and what is my responsibility to disclose as a negative person. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. No, no, no. Of course. I think I always assumed that you were positive until we we, we had a conversation where you revealed that you weren't. And uh-huh. we this was this was quite a while ago, but I think I, you know, I I, I confess to you that I have a lot of um, I feel a lot of discomfort taking up a leadership role in prep advocacy. Um, you know, that's that. Speaking as a man who's already living with HIV, it feels – I feel like it's somebody else's job, <laughs> you know, on some level, mm-hmm. or at least that it's not mine, you know, that it's um, – that my – there's a part of me that feels like my job is looking after those who are already HIV positive, but of course that's not true. You know, I'm, 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 I'm equally invested in keeping negative people negative to people that I love negative it is a weird line to walk, though. Yeah, I think we're, I think it's, I mean, I have lots of thoughts about what you said. I think, number one, for me, the AIDS movement that I understand myself to be in is primarily concerned with people already living with HIV. And so, for me, um, people living with HIV is my priority. And I, I don't often say the word prevention. I don't even really like the word because I think it's stigmatizing. I prefer to say reducing the harm of HIV because I think that uh, as much as I would love to see an end of the virus and I'd love to see an end to the negative ramifications of the virus, and while I would be happy to, to you know, see it all be over, I, I'm just not sure how the word prevention always works. So let me just say that. And then the other thing I would say is that too much the movement, I think, is about um, trying to keep negative people negative and trying to protect negative people. And I think often that comes at the expense of people living with HIV. I don't know. I don't see my job, actually. I don't know what my job is, but I do know that I want to always be prioritizing people living with HIV. And so sometimes that means taking a step back and making sure that if people living with HIV want to speak up and take space and do action, then that's possible. And then, like you are saying really beautifully, sometimes that means, like, when do I step forward and take up space so that someone else doesn't have to? You know, um, you said something very interesting. Um, Do you know Kenny Neal Schultz? No. He is a advocate, an activist, and a, a comedian. Um, oh, awesome. Anyone. He just did an interview with me, and um, he talked about the way in which, especially in the 90s, it was very hard to talk about keeping guys negative mm-hmm. um, without butting up against that stigmatizing notion. You know, like, mm-hmm. how do you keep guys negative and promote the idea that that is a good thing without turning around and stigmatizing being HIV positive. And I don't really have like a further thought than that, except that that is <laughs> that is another difficult line to walk. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been thinking about it a lot since he said it to me a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, sorry. <laughs> I guess no. I th- I mean I think it's super important, and especially to have a historical point of view on it. For me, I think that the goal is to increase life chance, like for reasons that aren't always clear to me, uh, my work is around HIV AIDS primarily, if not singularly. And it's through that lens that I work towards a goal of like increasing life chances for people and increasing life chances for the people that I just end up, you know, loving and knowing the most. And so I think of HIV 
AIDS is both like first and foremost, like, you know, a medical condition that some people live with and some people don't and that have social and political and economic ramifications. But I also think that it's a lens through which we can understand how the world works, both locally and globally. And so for me, if my goal is to increase life chances for everybody, then that means that it, it, it just for me, it's a given that some people have HIV and some people, the new people are going to get HIV. And so my goal, as much as I don't want people to get HIV who don't want it, that's not my goal. Prevention is not my goal. It's like, I think the system isn't set up yet that I can, I can fully run with that. I'm more concerned with the person who's already living with HIV and the person who may who is who's either systemically made more at risk of getting HIV or who is HIV positive newly. Like, I guess, like, if I have one, like, the thing that, the thing that's driving my work right now is, like, what is the experience to be diagnosed today and how can we make that better? No, I used to say that my job was to answer all the stupid questions <laughs> that I didn't want some 18-year-old kid who's freshly diagnosed to have to answer. Or to help that kid, ultimately, to help that kid navigate a system that I have spent a lifetime navigating. Mm -hmm. So, I, Can but, I just say that, I, yeah, I guess I'm just really excited by how you do your work then. Like, I'm excited by how and when you decide to take up space in relation to HIV AIDS and when you decide not to. Like I'm thinking about the web series and the way you all decided and wrote and performed HIV in that web series is super meaningful and important to me and something that I think needs more conversation around. So that's one thing that I think that is really powerful in your example of your life. But then I think also in your writing and, and how um, – HIV has been something that has always been there, but it's also something that, that you don't always bring in. And there's a way in which your visibility seems to also be, like, balanced with self-care and a need for privacy sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. You know, part of the, the web series you're talking about, I think, is part of the decision. Yeah. Um, the thing I really like about that story is, and it was Eli's idea, though it's something I've, I've always wanted to do. It is, Brandon is a character who's HIV positive, but his HIV is not incidental to the story, but it is not the thrust of the story. It is not mm -hmm. a, 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 about me or Brandon, you know, tragically wasting away or, or, or dealing with this brand new HIV diagnosis. Sorry, <laughs> as I, as I mumble through that. But thank you. I, um, I hate writing about HIV. I can tell you that for free. Um, <laughs> it's like my buddy Kevin says, I wish somebody would find a cure already so we could just raise money for anything else. Uh -huh. um, and I feel that way 100%. Um, I never wanted my life to be about HIV. Mm. But, you know, like my friend Tosh and I used to say, if not us who, if not now when, you play the hand you're dealt and you do what you can to help the people that you can. And I really have tried to do that without letting it eat me. <laughs> Not always mm -hmm. successfully. You know, I I was I was editor of a publication called Positive Frontiers for a while. And after that I never wanted to write about HIV ever again. Mm -hmm. Um like I I had to make myself. Um but you know, I figured out if I like balance out doing the stuff that I feel like I ought to be doing and have to do, I can also do the stuff that makes me smile. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I, to be honest, I get a little myopic when it comes to HIV-AIDS, and I think that that can actually be harmful. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot of my friends are living with HIV, and sometimes they have to tell me either directly or subtly that it's okay to not talk about HIV for a few hours, you know? <laughs> And I think that's part of, like, that's part of something, that's my job as a negative person, just to remember that, just to be aware of that. And I think I am very sensitive, and I think I'm pretty good at, at, at understanding some things, but I think I'll never fully understand, like, the way in which just living with HIV is taxing on the mind and body and spirit at all times, even when you're not talking about it or thinking about it or taking your medication or seeing a doctor or having to navigate or thinking about HIV criminalization. You know, and I guess that's why I find I found um, I think I first understood your work through Positive Frontiers, even though I think I think I must have known who you were before then. But that was like I think how, well, it is how we first made contact. But um, what was exciting to me about Positive Frontiers, and then kind of more generally the work that you do and the work that I see coming out of California, but I guess specifically LA, is the way in which HIV is put in balance in kind of like a broader sunny lifestyle, if that makes any sense. So I think the way in which, like, I don't think you and Brantez's work is exactly the same, but I think there's a way in which you um, can both incorporate HIV into the larger complexities of who you are in a way that show you as show you both as individuals, but then also like cast very contemporary light on a thing that not enough people talk about or hear about. Uh, God, I love Brontes. Um, <laughs> I also, uh, if we can just like take a quick diversion, I read your review of his book, Johnny, Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger? And um, you like, it was, <laughs> it was like, I, I read and loved that book. And like, um, and your review of it unlocked layers to me that I hadn't even seen for myself. Hmm. Um, so uh, thank you for that. It was really, it was really great. And also, um, uh, when preparing for this, I came across a dialogue that you uh, had about um, was it totally fucked up or the Doom Generation? Or did you watch all three? Oh yeah, it was totally fucked up. I had a conversation with Charles. Yeah. Yes. Oh my. That was really smart. Um, actually, there's a there's a perfect parallel. I think that there is. Um, just like there is a, a, a universality of like teen angst, um, mm -hmm. there is a universality of an HIV wariness, let's call it, mm. call it that um, I think comes with most um, anybody who, who's living with HIV. But I also think that just like there is a specific time and point of view being picked up on in Greg Araki's teen apocalypse trilogy there's a very specific point of view that comes with having lived in the bay area mm. in like the late 90s and early aughts it was just a very special time and place to live there at that time is to to live in this like estuary between you know the plague years and and and, and a far off distant cure you know uh, uh, of, of which of which prep is like the first title eddies if I can extend the metaphor out and 
the way in which the Bay Area encourages everyone who lives there to be as uniquely and weirdly them as possible and gives them an alternative family structure in which to, like, make those explorations, mm. it was better than college for figuring out who you are, you know? So I'm very lucky to have, like, been in that time and that place. Uh, there's a theme in your podcast of talking about um, that time and place. Um, I'm thinking about the the podcast you did with your friend who now lives in Austin and um, Nathan Nathan Report. Yeah, yeah, Nathan. I think a really beautiful kind of uh, atmosphere of that conversation is is um, uh, your beautiful desire to want to connect with him about that time and place and. Uh, it's in all of them, but that one seems really intense. That one, there's times where I feel like you're shaking him, being like, "Remember, come on!" Like, <laughs> and he's all like, "Austin, Austin." <laughs> um, um, it's funny. Um, I I almost don't see that I'm doing it. Like, I mean, I like in retrospect, I do. In speaking to I think both him and 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 to Brontes, I found myself. Uh, tumbling down this like nostalgia hole, mm-hmm. um, but for a place, you know, it was home in a way that no other place ever was. It was a place mm-hmm. for the first time in my life where I didn't feel like a freak, and or I didn't feel like I had to pretend to be something I wasn't in order to make people like me. And it's not that way anymore, you know. I mean, just like. You know, places are always changing, and mm-hmm. um, and and it is like the the economic conditions are different there, making it a different place. Um, and I, those things that I needed, like I don't need anymore, I don't even really want in a way. But but I guess like I miss it the way like refugees miss their homeland. <laughs> you know, like I miss mm-hmm. it like. Mm-hmm. I miss it for what it was and who I was when I was there. And, um, yeah, I guess it is. Like, <laughs> I guess I better write about it. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm going to spend the rest of all of these interviews talking about it. I think it also means it's a sign of you're in a moment of transition. I think we often – I think the way to successfully work our way forward is sometimes we have to look back a little bit so maybe there's just something that you know that you're missing or something that you're searching for and some of that lies in the past and some of that lies in the future uh, um yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean i mean I'm, just, I'm sorry i'm laughing i'm just like i i realize like i i always have a bad habit of kind of making new things about me but this one has just gone like full tilt <laughs> <laughs> Ah, da 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 da. Um, how old are you? <laughs> um, uh, I'm 37. I was born in 1979. Okay. I I asked because I'm I'm curious what your experience with AIDS was growing up. Um, yeah, um, what was your awareness of it? Did you know anybody who was infected? Yeah, this is a really helpful question because I have um. So part of my school is that I'm writing about HIV, obviously, and I have like a kind of a developed academic idea of my experience of growing up with HIV. But I feel like for the purposes of this interview, and I feel like like the energy between us means like I'm not going to default to that kind of academic 
thing that I've been thinking about for five years. And so if I'm really honest with myself and honest with you, my experience of growing up, my earliest memories are all mediated through media. Like um, I remember the lady from Alice, the TV show on some late night special talking about HIV AIDS. I remember Arsenio Hall. I remember Magic Johnson. And then, as if my memories are a film, uh, then we flash forward and I remember junior high locker rooms and like the rich hot boy um, talking about Magic Johnson and his HIV status. And I think even by then I knew that the, the rich handsome boy was supposed to be an asshole, but he wasn't an asshole about Magic Johnson. He said something like vaguely like heartfelt, like, oh, that must suck. And that made such an impact on me. And then fast forward to high school, and all of a sudden, all of the AIDS media that I had been consuming my whole life, which is like, um, you know, talk shows and the annual Entertainment Weekly edition where they would publish all the photos of people in the entertainment industry who had passed away from HIV AIDS the year before, all of that stopped existing. And all of a sudden, HIV AIDS was nowhere to be found. It wasn't in school. It wasn't in media. My friends weren't talking about it. Um, so it was just this thing that took up a lot of space in my head. So that's kind of like my personal inside experience of it. In my household, um, my stepmom's first husband had died in 1988 of HIV AIDS. I didn't know him at, at all. Uh, they had separated long before uh, I knew my stepmom. Um, but I do remember that um, she got a call saying that her ex-husband had died and that she would have to get tested. And around that time, um, my mom had uh, a child, and so she was pregnant. And and it, you can't really trust your memory, and I have a lot of parent issues, both mother and father issues, but my memory tells me that in my mind I knew that she didn't have HIV and I knew that my sibling didn't have HIV and that everybody was being weird about it. But I never voiced that because I knew also, like, it was my, – what my mom was going through wasn't just about the fear of HIV. It was also – um, you know, she was mourning her, her ex-husband and she was, um, it gave her space to put other emotions. Um, and then kind of fast forward into young adulthood. Uh, I'm a non-drinker. It's not that I'm sober per se, but I just don't drink and I don't do drugs. And, um, I didn't know how to meet gay people. And so first, uh, my friend told me to go work at like a clothing store so I could meet gay people that worked at other clothing stores. And that didn't work. <laughs> I worked at this kind of semi-famous Canadian chain of clothiers called Le Chateau. Uh, it's where you go to get, like, your nightclub clothes. It's where strippers go to get their clothes. But it's also where you go to get your first, like, for your first kind of semi-adult interview. That's where you go get your discounted blazer. Um, yeah. Anyway, I didn't meet any gay people there, really. Uh and then my friend told me maybe I should volunteer with a with an AIDS service organization. So I did. And um I mean that's a whole other contingent. So up until young adulthood, HIV AIDS is mainly in my head and I I made a lot of assumptions and a lot of uh, thoughts about it. And then once I started working at an AIDS service organization, the world kind of changed. Wait, so how old were you when you came to work at this organization? Uh I must have been in my early 20s. Yeah, I was in my early 20s when I started volunteering, and uh, I went from volunteering to working, like, within a year. That's how um, 
how very unlike uh, almost everybody else in their 20s, including me, you just went to work out. Um, <laughs> it's funny you, you mentioned that um, that deafening silence that all of a sudden happens in the 90s mm-hmm. around HIV. I'm, my first awareness of it was like a made-for-lifetime movie mm-hmm. um, about Ryan White. Uh-huh. He, um, like cracks his head in the pool and like all the moms are freaking out because they know he has HIV. They're like pulling their precious babies out of the water. Uh-huh. And I just remember thinking that poor kid, you know, like that, I think you're like, I was thinking about it now. I think that movie really fucked me up. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I felt so much, um, I felt so much pain for him, you know, mm-hmm. just because through no fault of his own, he was he was a leper, you know. He was toxic, and mm-hmm. um, I think like he was realizing, God, <laughs> this is better than therapy. Because realizing right now, I realized, oh, and then I, I I thought that kid was toxic, and then when I became HIV positive, I totally thought I was toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I remember other things. I remember the, the kids in the hall talking about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> loved the kids in the hall when I was a kid. And I remember being a lot younger and hearing, seeing things in the news and hearing things. You know, I was born in 81. Um, and then, like, at just some point, like a, like, like a faucet, it turns off. Mm-hmm. People just stop talking about it. And that, you know, you're left with only, like, this is something that happens to gay people. Nobody talks mm-hmm. about it. I think that silence, in a lot of ways, was as traumatic or if not more traumatic for kids our age than all the 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 talk that went on before it. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I'm studying in school. I call it the second silence. So I think from 96 um, with the release of medication to um, the Swiss statement in 2012, I think that whole period of time was a, was silence. And and at its best, we had to make sense out of all the information that we had accrued up until then. And at its worst, I think we can understand that's the beginning of, like, neoliberalism um, sneaking its way into HIV care. And we see the rise of AIDS, Inc., for better or for worse. We see the reduction of um, community-based interventions into HIV, AIDS. And we see the ways in which, like, the, the activism that still was happening during that time and the art creation that was still happening during that time became hard to find. And so if you became HIV positive between 96 and 2012, it was pretty shitty because um, there wasn't the same community support. There was a whole new layer of stigma, and there wasn't um, – I, I just think that it wasn't – I think it always sucks, and I think there's never a good time to – figure out you're living with HIV, but I think definitely the period from 96 to 2012 was an exceptionally bleak time for it. <laughs> well, I can only speak for me, but yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty bleak time. Really? Is that when you found out? I mean, um, I tested positive in 2005, April uh, and I was like, you know, I, I was, I was the kind of kid that if you had told me you were HIV positive, I wouldn't sleep with you, you know. Mm. So I mm-hmm. like, I, I thought I didn't know anybody that was positive, and I thought that I had never slept with anybody that was positive. And um, 
when I found out, um, I thought I was, I thought it was a monster. I thought it was in love. I thought it was in love with her, really, at that point. I thought that I was. Wait, sorry. Um, what did you say? You thought what? I was unlovable. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and I remember <laughs> two, two, um, two experiences, like, right away that kind of backed that idea up. Um, when, like, my, my ex-boyfriend, who I had, like, recently broke up with, I had become positive, like, right after we broke up with each other. Uh-huh. Um, and he was my only friend in L.A., so, like, he, of course, was the person I turned to, like, when I, you know, found out. And he was finally able to drag me out. We went to this bar. It was a party that Mario Diaz used to throw called Hot Dog. And I met this guy that was, like, it was, like, um, somebody had been, like, listening in on my dreams as I, like, stitched together myself what was at the time like my ideal man like he was he was like just a couple years older than me he was very handsome um he was an architect he was smart he was he had a great sense of humor and we like danced and like hung out all night together and then out of nowhere out of nowhere he like we're like slow dancing or something and he like pulls me back and he looks me deep in the eyes and he says you're not you're not HIV positive, are you? I said, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I am. I just found out. And he said, oh, okay. I need to go talk to my friends real quick. I'll be right back. And I never saw him again. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I hate that guy. <laughs> I mean, I like, I was that guy, you know? Like, it's hard to hate that guy. I, I, I had done something very similar to a guy a couple of years before. And so it's hard to hate that guy. But mm-hmm. uh, it did contribute to me hating myself pretty hard for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, God, I don't know why I got off on that tangent. Wait, um, it's not a tangent. It's like deeply related to what we're talking about. <laughs> um, I mean, to turn the table a little bit, can you share a little bit about your you're, I'm going to sound really Canadian here. Can you share a little bit about your process? Like, how do you know that you're not toxic? How do you rem- how do you tell yourself that you're lovable? How do you remind yourself that how that guy treated you, while understandable, was is unacceptable and hurtful? Um, well, uh, I don't know if my blueprint it has like broad, broad um, application, but. Um, so I guess the first thing I did was find myself a drug problem to climb into. Um, mm-hmm. I spent I spent uh, the next three months doing a lot of meth, and then one day I realized that I didn't want to die. And that voice just kind of popped into my head out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like, look at yourself, look what you're doing. Like, do you really want to die? And I had to admit that I did not really want to die. And so. You know, I kind of stopped associating with those people. Um, my ex-girlfriend came to visit me and told me, look, LA is killing you. I want you to move back to San Francisco with me. And I did. And in San Francisco, I met the people that would become my family. Mm. Um, 
So it was only through, you know, I guess I figured out I wasn't toxic by by letting other people help me mm. and by letting them love me. You know, mm. I mean love as like a not just have the feeling of love for me, but letting them help me, letting them drag me out of the house and letting them show me that I was worth dragging out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a big part of it, honestly, was falling in with a group of very history-minded faggots and learning my history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really easy to hate yourself and think you're toxic when you just think of yourself as like uh, an ugly duckling who like fell in filth while you were in the middle of becoming a swan. Like when you see the faces and read the stories and learn the lives of every gay man who came before you who was living with this virus, and you know when you see that they were worthy of love, you can see that you're worthy of love. Hmm. That's really beautiful. You said at the beginning of it that you don't know if you're a blueprint for others, and I I think it doesn't matter. I, I agree. Um, but also, I think there's something really, not universal, but shareable in what you're saying, uh, if you don't mind me saying that. Um, I think that we don't talk enough about, like, the trauma of finding out that you're living with HIV and how shitty we do it, how shitty we tell people, um, even kind of some of the best stories even even the best way to find out you're living with HIV is often leaves people with marks that take some, you know, decades to kind of get through. And so when I hear your story, I hear someone who, I don't know, did what they could to stay alive, even if it didn't make sense at first. And then, I don't know, and then, uh, like, I don't want to say a higher power, but maybe a deeper power or just like a human instinct or something else kicked in and and you summoned you summoned some Care Bears to help you out, which is really great. <laughs> um, I wonder sometimes who I'd be, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I think about. I used to think about a lot more than I think about now. I look back on who I was and the path that I was on. I'm not sure I'd like myself as much as I'd be right now if I mm-hmm. never be so much I'd be positive. Mm-hmm. That's a weird thing to, like, think about, or, but it's true. Like, I... Um, I used to think I was better than gay culture or better than being gay. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm glad I don't think that way anymore. I'm not sure I would have ever come to that conclusion had I not um, fallen in, you know, had I not become immersed in gay culture as a process of, like, uh, trying to process out my own HIV. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, such a deep statement because I I – I've stopped saying this out loud because I don't think it's as funny as I thought it was, but I am deeply homophobic and I really work hard to not be homophobic. (laughs) And my homophobia comes out the most when it comes to HIV work because the, the gay exceptionalism around HIV is sometimes the most unhelpful thing within the AIDS movement. And I am trying to love myself and love my gay family more and I'm trying to um, deal with the cultural inheritance of being gay and of being part of the AIDS movement and see those things both together and separate and it's really hard. It's funny that you say gay exceptionalism. I 
had the privilege of being invited to the U.S. Conference on AIDS in D.C. this last year as part of a social media fellowship from um, the Black AIDS Institute. Hmm. And there was about 20 of us, and it was me and one other white gay man and um, a couple young Latino guys, and then everybody else in the fellowship was black, and including this guy named Reggie Smith, who um, is straight and has been living with HIV since the 80s. He was an injection drug user. And at one point, um, he was talking about how we need um, more resources, more prep resources targeted to the black community. Mm -hmm. And there was this very tribal, like, nativist, I guess, maybe is the right word. Like, I, I wanted to be like, I, I, I got my, my feathers up, you know? Like, I was like, don't straight people get enough resources, first of all. And second of all, like, I sounded myself thinking, this is our disease in a way that I gave, like, I had, I gave, I, it gave me pause. Like I had to, I had to step back and go, no, this didn't just happen to us. This happened to a bunch of people. You know, like it happened to the black community. It's happening to the Latino community. It's not just happening to the gay community. <laughs> it was one of those uncomfortable like moments of self growth and realization that would um, um, happen periodically to human beings. Uh, I I was a little grossed out by myself. You know? We can be a terrible people sometimes. We, you know, we are in a lot of ways like distilled manness, you know, like <laughs> we're, and, 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 and everybody knows like <laughs> guys can be total jerks. Can be terrible. Yeah. And I don't want to land there. Like I read this book, um, it's two years ago now called The Gay Generation, uh, by this professor and researcher at NYU, like a much well-respected person who I think is a sociologist. This person is Perry, uh, I think his last name. I can't say his last name, sorry. Um, and he wrote this book called The AIDS Generation, and it looks at a group of uh, gay men who were diagnosed as living with HIV um, late in the plague years as young men and kind of tracked their lives and tracked their experience of HIV. And I just had such a visceral rage towards that book. I was supposed to be reviewing it for Lambda. And um, I, I, I gave myself writer's block uh, for six months. I just hated that book so much. I was so angry at it. Uh, if you look at it, every page has like, it's like, <laughs> It's like a, a possessed person is, is reading the book because there's all these lines. There's just me writing in the margins like WTF or asshole or um, – and um, it, it broke me open in a way. So I had been already thinking about um, this thing like this gay exceptionalism with HIV AIDS, and I had become increasingly frustrated the, with the ways in which this like resurgence of focus on AIDS of the past – is only focusing on predominantly, you know, white, hot gay dudes, which is both, like, thrilling and liberating, but also limiting and frustrating. And then this book just gave me the outlet to just, like, go full-on rage. And it's healing. It's from healing from that book and trying to understand why that book made me so angry that I came to the conclusion that um, that book 
at first I was like, this book shouldn't exist. He's trying to say that AIDS only happened to gay people and we should only be thinking about it as a gay disease and that the AIDS years were only about the past and AIDS isn't existing now. And all of that could be a fair analysis, but I think a, a deeper thing is happening. He is himself living with HIV and he's in his 50s. He's led an incredible life. He's given a lot to the community and he wants a little recognition for the fact that he's alive, the fact that he's helped others stay alive, and that there's a whole community of men who had, you know, got some really intense news at the beginning of their lives and and through and there's a spectrum of people how they lived with that incredibly shitty news based on who and what they were. And I think he just wanted to show that there was a group of men who did some exceptional things and that we can honor that. And my frustration was that he was being too myopic with it and and that those stories deserve to be told, but we have to tell it in a bigger context. And we just don't have that framework right now. We have such a fucking narrow view of what HIV is right now that even this this latest um, thing with Hillary Clinton, it it should be about HIV AIDS and it should be about uh, access to care and it should be about history, but it's becoming about the LGBT voter. And that just is so outrageous and profoundly upsetting to me because um, I think like if you are a heterosexual with HIV, if you are a person of color with HIV, or if you are living with HIV and your identity isn't understandable or recognizable, then you are dealing with like, like multiple um, social ills, not just the not just the virus, but the ways in which like your body isn't even recognized. And and I think as gay men involved in this, we have to understand like in the same way that I have to kind of figure out what is my role as a negative person in the HIV AIDS movement. Gay people who take up a lot of space within the movement, we also have to think about what is our role. And I've been wondering about this word called stewardship lately. Um, there's a museum in Berlin, the Gay Museum. When they opened, they just collected gay stuff, like literal, like, gay man stuff. And then as time wore on, they opened their collection up to, like, the full spectrum of LGBT stuff. But since the beginning of the AIDS crisis, they've always collected stuff about AIDS regardless of identity. And so here within this, like, this, this temple of LGBT history is the history of AIDS in Europe. And I just find that such a profound picture and, and it's almost like they, AIDS was happening so intensely to the gay community in a way that could be named that they felt a responsibility to react for all people and not to take action necessarily, but to provide for future generations to take action. And I'm trying to see if that's a helpful metaphor for like, is that the role? of gay people in the, the long moment of HIV AIDS? Is it our job to act as stewards and to make sure that resources are being shared and then slowly, like, reduce the exceptionalism of, I don't know, I, I'm still working that out. I think that there is a sense that the motivation, there's a sense that she is um, deliberately, and I say deliberately because we all have a sense that Hillary Clinton doesn't do anything by accident. Um, um, there is a sense that she is deliberately rewriting the history of the Reagan administration to score points with, the, 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 you know, I guess we call them, we used to call them Reagan Democrats, you know. 
mm-hmm. um, or just in general, people that have a, a fond memories of the Gipper. And I think there is there is a lot of rage, especially within the gay community, because we feel, and I, uh, there is a sense, and I, I, not a, not an inaccurate one, that there would not be an AIDS epidemic if not for the inaction of the Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. And the Reagan mm-hmm. administration's inaction was motivated mm-hmm. by the fact that, that the gay community was the primary target of this play. Right, but can I pause right there? Because that's only true to a degree. It, was, it wasn't, the thing is we know now that HIV was circulating in the U.S. as early as 1966. And we know that from the decade of 1970 to 1980s that that street-involved people, that drug-involved people, that black and brown people were all dying, and there wasn't always an explanation for why they were dying, but it was written off as pneumonia or is written off as OD or is written off as, like, exposure or or whatever. And we know that now. Um, We knew that as early as 87. We knew that the first case of HIV – um, the first confirmed HIV-related death was 1969, a young boy named Robert Rayford, and that was confirmed in 1987. And that was like the same month that patient zero was brought onto the scene. And unlike some meta level, we chose the myth of patient zero over the life of Robert Rayford, a black straight teenager or a black teenager whose sexuality was unknown, because um, because patient zero confirmed the AIDS villain myth that we needed to be able to move on, whereas Robert Rayford's life brought up questions. And I actually think that there's something profound in us as as people admitting that AIDS wasn't – people didn't want to connect the dots until young, healthy white men started to get sick and that their homosexuality could be absorbed to a degree by the system. So it didn't mean – so homosexuality prevented people from – um, getting access to care, but it meant that their bodies were valued enough to be concerned. And I'm still working my way through that. I think it has a lot to do with like airy fairy and important notions of capitalism and the way the white fit gay body is read. But I just think, I, I just am scared that homophobia isn't the only thing that was, was at work in 1981 when it comes to HIV AIDS. And I, but none of that is to say that I disagree with everything that you say. You're absolutely right. HIV AIDS could have been ended if Reagan's administration had taken action, and his inaction was because of homophobia. All of that's true, but that truth is within a bigger system of other things too. You're absolutely right. I'm just trying to I'm trying to pinpoint the rage that people are feeling today. Mm-hmm. And um, um, and I think you know you're 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 right. This is we all know that the the Randy Schultz. I mean, we don't all know, but you and I and people who care about these things know that the Randy Schultz patient zero myth is a convenient boogeyman bullshit, um, <laughs> and it's stigmatized and and demonized gay men and gay men's sexuality like ever since. Um, in the present, we I, – I, I always say when people say I'm not defined by my homosexuality, because in, in some ways I am. And I am mm. also in some ways defined by my my my, my stereotypes. Mm. Um, I would not be who I am today without those two things. And just like I would not be who I am today without HIV, I don't think the gay community 
would be mm-hmm. who it is today without HIV. It is, it is, it redefined us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, it is ours. Like we own it in that sense. But mm. we are not the only owners of it. Mm. Um, I think that um, the way in which the only stories we tell about HIV are the stories of the 80s and 90s, that keeps the narrative of HIV rooted in the gay community. We need to tell mm-hmm. modern stories about what mm-hmm. it's really like to live with HIV now. Um, I really think that that will help to um, build bridges amongst many communities because HIV really can be a thread to unite people. You know, it can tie us closer together politically, and it can make us uh, it can make us stronger. Mm-hmm. That's what I learned in uh, that's what I learned in USA. <laughs> That um, it, it didn't just happen to us, and that uh, that fact can be a source of strength for many different embattled groups to work together to a uh, a, a a bigger a bigger goal, broader social justice and better healthcare outcomes. Like these are things I think we can unite around. You know, one of the the tragedies of kind of our gay-centric view of HIV is it keeps us from looking for allies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, so much of what you just said was really powerful, like the the idea of stories as as kind of key to to the future health of, of people living with HIV and of the movement, I think, is huge. And that's one of the things that's core to my studies at the seminary. Um, in the 1980s, Christian ethics kind of exploded, and a new wave of Christian ethics was born out of, uh, to put it too simply, but out of identity politics. Um, Christian ethics was largely owned uh, and practiced by, like, white people, and then um, the 1980s saw an influx of uh, diversity of people um, interested in staking claim within Christian ethics, and one of those people is the amazing Dr. Tracy West, and her work really profoundly tells us that ethics are formed by where the story begins. And right now the story of HIV AIDS begins in 1981 with like 41 or five um, sick homosexuals that we don't really know that much about, but we've decided that we know something about them. And, and what would it mean if the story of HIV AIDS started with Robert Rayford in 1969? Or even more profoundly, what if it started with the independence of Zaire in 1959? Um, what if it started in the late 1800s with with the with the spillover moment? You know, um, I think of HIV/AIDS through a, a long moment, and I think for me that's a healthier way to be to be doing that. And and if we do that, I think we get to your idea of like we need to be looking for allies and partners and and just people to say like this is this is where we meet each other and this is this is an issue that maybe we'll work together on for six months or maybe it's the rest of our lives. Something that I think we both have in common is like culture is so vitally important. It's important that HIV AIDS be part of nightlife. It's important that HIV AIDS be part of web series and writing and and it doesn't have to be the number one thing about it, but it should be there like as as part of our daily reality. Yeah, and because and I think in a really real, real way, if it's not reflected in the culture you see around you, if it's not reflected in the culture that you, and I hate this word, but consume, mm-hmm. um, um, then it's not real. Mm-hmm. I think there's a reason that um, gay men 
you know, somewhat subconsciously model our relationships on straight relationships because mm-hmm. we, there's not there's not a critical mass of gay relationships mm-hmm. in uh, in in TV and movies for us to like, or 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 just in society around us mm-hmm. for us to to pattern ourselves on. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, I mean, <laughs> that's that's a uh, that's a, a whole other box of, of things. But um, I'm convinced that seeing characters living with HIV in books, in film, in in, in movie, in TV, um, seeing characters who are queer or transitioning or or just you know straight up and down homosexual, like these. Mm-hmm. This is this is an important component for people who are experiencing these things for themselves, for them to feel not alone, for them to not have to um, invent the wheel from scratch every single time. Mm-hmm. Do you know who Alexei Romanov is? Mm-hmm. He, um, he organized the Black Cat Riots. I mean, demonstrations. Oh. He's always cool. Very, uh, <laughs> he always says the Stonewall was a riot, but we were we were orderly and organized. But, um, <laughs> I think I was interviewing another project and um, I started to complain about kids today and how specifically this kind of millennial seeming desire to live a straight life, to be straight homosexuals, you know, and I I think it makes them less compassionate, this lack of struggle that they, relatively to to Mm -hmm, you or me, mm -hmm. to to the generations that came from. I think it, I think struggle makes people interesting and it breeds compassion and mm-hmm. a lack of those things. And mm-hmm. Alexi said, these kids are going to be fighting for rights that you and I didn't even know we were missing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he went on to say, like, the, he said, you know, like in my day, like, if there was, there was no transsexuals, there were, if you ever spoke of them at all, they were transsexuals, you mm-hmm. know. And 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 now we are having serious and substantive conversations about the rights that the, the, the trans folks and bisexual people should have. And the kids, they, they're going to be fighting for rights we didn't even know we needed. And that gave me a lot of hope, actually. Mm. <laughs> that that, uh, that um, made me look at them, usable monsters, in a totally different light. That's good. Um, I like that you shared that. So before we go, um, I want to ask you if you have any advice for um, young queers who are pursuing HIV and their activism or their art, their writing, do you have any words of wisdom for them? Well, that's a nice question. Um, there's this thing. I saw it a lot when I was at Visual Aids. I call it AIDS phase. And it's usually like um, somebody early in their college experience um, had at least one decent professor who somehow got a picture of ACT UP in a slideshow or in a lesson. And all of a sudden, um, in a queer person, seeing another queer person in history that was both angry, taking action, and and winning, no matter what that kind of means to someone, is such a powerful thing that all of a sudden 
um, a young queer who maybe never thought about AIDS before is now going to go down a rabbit hole of learning about ACT UP and learning about the early AIDS activism and the early response to HIV AIDS. And, and for some people, that AIDS phase lasts a semester or like as long as it takes to write a really good paper or a really amazing art piece. And for some people, it lasts the rest of their lives and they just, they're going to be exploring HIV AIDS in different ways forever. And I guess the thing that is most heartwarming to me is when I see a person newly engaged in HIV AIDS taking their time through all this stuff that might seem basic to someone who's been doing this work a long time. And then as they're going through the kind of like very seminal, rudimentary, important first wave of AIDS activism, they begin to ask questions about like, what am I not seeing? Who am I not seeing? What am I not learning here? And and not accepting answers of like, well, there wasn't footage of of black people at AIDS activism marches in the 80s, or we didn't know any trans people who were involved or something like that. They don't let those questions stop them, and they don't let the, the limitations of the existing archives stop them. I have this intense luxury and privilege right now to be listening to oral histories from 1994 of uh, people living with HIV in Brooklyn. And these were tapes that had been previously forgotten or lost. And they just, the Brooklyn Historical Society found them and digitized them. And so if you had gone to the Brooklyn Historical Society five years ago and been like, I need to listen to, uh, do you have any, do you have any resources about people living with HIV uh, in Brooklyn? They would have said no. And then, and then they found them, and now we have, you know, the we have Iris de Cruz's Iris de la Cruz's mother and daughter and brother talking about her, and we have Melissa talking about what it was to be married to a hemophiliac living with HIV in 1992 in Brooklyn, and and I just think like if someone is excited by HIV AIDS activism, um, keep that rebel spirit in their heart and just keep like digging even past where they think is enough. That's awesome. Thank you so yeah. much. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you. Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been, um, I, I feel kind of bad because we spent more time talking about me than you, but um, I feel like I've got a lot to like think about and like a lot of stuff I want to write now because of this conversation, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's amazing. It was really good for me too because I had to be uh, myself with you, and that it's easy not to be myself. So thank you. Awesome. Fantastic. All right, sir. I will talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good day. Thank you. Well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ted. I certainly did, but I have to admit, I feel kind of bad about it. Ideally, this podcast is a series of conversations rather than interviews, and naturally, that involves me talking a little bit about myself. This one kind of went off the rails. I promise to try and keep things focused on my guests next time. <laughs> there are links to visual aids and Ted's social media on the info page to this episode. Many thanks to Ted and my wonderful producer, Jordan Goodwin. And until next time, this is Brendan Shukart, signing off. Lend a hand.